0: This is Serena Cherry from Svalbard, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with another brand new episode. And on the show today, we have Michael Malarkey. He does it all. Acting, music. He's been performing in bands his whole life. He's got an excellent new band, Burial Clouds, with an excellent new record, Last Days of a Dying World. It just came out on Church Road Records. We talk about that. We talk about Michael's acting career. We cover everything. And that conversation is coming up shortly. But first, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Shirts. We've got shirts for sale at Deathwish Inc. Short sleeve, long sleeve, logo tees, a custom designed shirt. You name it, we've got it. Reviews. Give us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can write a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. Also, you can catch me out on the road very soon with the Darling Fire. We have tour dates that are kicking off June 9th in Miami. There will be select dates in the Southeast. We are supporting the wonderful band Spotlights out on their tour. Come out and say hello. For more information, check the New Scene Instagram at Pod or the Darling Fire Instagram at TheDarlingFire. Also, don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. We have a ticket giveaway going on right now for the Bean Reunion Show. That takes place Saturday, June 17th in Boston at Roadrunner. It's a very stacked lineup featuring the Suicide File, Stick to Your Guns, Killing Time, and more. To enter, follow me on Instagram at ScenePod and follow iodine on Instagram at iodine recordings. Tag a friend in the comments section of the post. You could win two tickets to the gig. Winners will be selected tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. The Iron Roses have some Northeast tour dates coming up. That little run kicks off July 13th in Millersville, Pennsylvania. Stretch Armstrong have a gig coming up October 20th in Asbury Park, New Jersey at House of Independence. And finally, Audio Karate have dropped their first new track in 20 years. It's called A Show of Hands. It's part of a limited edition 7-inch that's coming out on Iodine Recordings. So make sure you order that. Give it a listen. The single is out there now. Also, the band has tour dates coming up this summer. For more information, head to the Iodine Instagram at Iodine Recordings or to the Iodine website at iodinerecordings.com. Com. Also, don't forget to support this month's sponsor, Deathwish Inc. Converge Jane Live is out July 7th. That's a live recording of Converge performing Jane Doe at Roadburn Festival. Pre order yours now. Also, Converge have upcoming tour dates with Brutus. There are dates in the US and Europe, so if you can make it to that, you have to. You have to two excellent bands on one show loma prieta last is out june 30th check out their single glare now and catch them on tour this summer and sadly luke rock of modern life is war was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer and he has a gofundme that has been set up to help out with medical costs our thoughts go out to luke and his family we're hoping for the best Check the Deathwish Inc. news section for the link to that GoFundMe. For more information, check out the Deathwish Instagram at Deathwish Inc. or check out their website at deathwishinc.com. Okay. So make sure you check back in with me in segment three after the interview with Michael. We got mentioned in a few publications. I'll talk about that. I'll tell you everything that's going on with me. But right now, We are going to speak to Michael Malarkey of Burial Clouds. Enjoy. We are here now with Michael Malarkey. Michael, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be here, man.
0: Yes, Michael, it's wonderful to have you here. You know, you've got a lot going on. You've got a new record coming out with Burial Clouds. You are the front man of the band now. The singles sound excellent. Can't wait to hear the record. You're, of course, doing a lot in the world of acting. And I'm sure you've got a lot of great stuff coming up there as well. And Michael, we're going to cover all of that. But first, I need to ask you, how are you doing
1: today? Starting with the most difficult question, man. Shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm all right. I mean, I'm, I'm knee-deep in kids right now. I got two of them. So it's, uh, it was a, a mad rush to get here to my garage and get set up. So I'm a little frazzled, <laughs> if we're being honest. But uh, I'm good, man. You know, enjoying the Atlanta weather right now, just creeping into the heat. So uh, it's, it's, it's nice. Things are good. How old are your kids? Eight and three.
0: So you probably have your hands full every minute of every day.
1: Yes, sir. I've got (laughs) evenings. I've got about two hours in the evening that's mine.
0: And I'm sure you grasp to it desperately as if uh, it were the last drops of water in a desert.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you got to have something to keep you going and little projects to look forward to. And, you know, that's why I like to uh, partake in different diverse projects because it keeps me uh, excited and motivated and a better dad, for being honest.
0: Yeah, I know. I, I, I feel you on that. I, without my little projects and everything I am doing, I am very unhappy. Yeah, you have the ability to do the two best things, in my opinion, acting and music.
1: Yeah, well, I've always been a musician, really, since I was uh, about seventeen or eighteen. You know, when I uh, finished high school, I didn't want to go to college, so I started up a band and been making music ever since. Even when I went and Trained as an actor and did shows in the West End and in London. I was always, I always had my guitar in the dressing room and was writing the whole time. So it's for me, it's it's always just been part of my life and my identity, I suppose. So yeah, they're kind of they happen simultaneously. Often, you know, when I'm on on set, I'm often writing.
0: Yeah, I've done a little acting myself, and there was there was a stage play that I was in. And, you know, there had to be a lot of emotion in certain parts. So I would listen to certain songs to get me there.
1: Yeah, the music's a good inroad to access emotion or past stuff or whatever you need for a particular scene, especially like heavy scenes. I like to use music too. I use a lot of like instrumental stuff, you know, like uh, doom jazz and things like that.
0: Do you uh is that your go-to if you need to get really emotional or something like that? Not
1: not for the emotion necessarily. I mean, what do I use for emotional stuff? I mean, I use a lot of ambient music because it doesn't uh tell you what to think. You know, it very much uh, merges with your own feelings and you can kind of train it to where you're trying to head. So, you know, a lot of a lot of ambient stuff.
0: Yeah, there was a scene where I needed to cry. So I used an, well, it's a mostly ambient band called Hammock. So they, yeah. they had a song and I would use that and that got me there very, very easily.
1: That'll get you there. That's very delicate sounds and beautiful, sweeping scores.
0: It's like the perfect cinematic music. Definitely. You grew up in Ohio, right? Yellow Springs? I did. Yeah.
1: Yellow Springs, Ohio. Very small little hippie town and kind of near Dayton. Um, and it was great because it was a little arts community, you know, I mean, it is, it still is. Um, although things change and shift over the years, but it was a very supportive environment for trying shit out and creating. And, you know, it was very, very supportive community for that. They weren't trying to be like, yo, you know, get your grades in order and go to college. So I didn't get my grades in order or go to college. (laughs) (laughs) I went to the, the, uh, I went to acting school instead, but, Um, Not before playing in various different bands and touring and stuff in Ohio.
0: Yeah. Talk about that. Where did you come in as far as music goes? Did you, I mean, did you discover punk, hardcore, like what grabbed you?
1: Yeah, it was very much punk and ska actually, you know, it was that, it was those, the years of Warp Tour, the golden years, I suppose, of Warp Tour before it got weird, um, but yeah, like bands like Rancid and Op Ivy, Fugazi, all the DC stuff, um, I'm really connected with that. And, um, um, yeah, going to my first shows. I mean, my first show was, was actually less than Jake. Cause I was really, really into the punk ska stuff and skating. And, um, I kind of backtracked from there and was like, okay, let's look at the roots of these groups. And they were all into the old punk stuff. And so I just started digging and I'm still digging, you know. Um, but yeah, it started off with punk and, uh, kind of morphed into heavier stuff as life got heavier, I suppose.
0: Yeah. I, uh, w- I came in on the heaviest stuff in the world and then kind of backtracked from there. So I, I sort of did the opposite of you.
1: Right. What was your, what was your starter for 10?
0: Uh, f- one of the first shows I ever went to was Converge, Dillinger, Escape Plan, For the Love of, Turmoil. Damn. Um,
1: wow. What an introduction. <laughs>
0: I I was scared for my life and hooked ever since. And I liked it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, Converge has always been one of my favorite bands. And I, I quickly went down that route myself and got into Dillinger and all that stuff too. But um, nice. yeah, Converge is still top of the game. Always, never missing, you know. And uh, yeah. just always loved following as well. Jake's art and the Death Wish releases. It's just, um, it's all pretty quality stuff.
0: It's rare for a band to be around that long and still consistently put out music that I enjoy. Totally. So t- when did you start performing? Now, I read uh, you became singer for a band called Shadyside. Was that the first band you joined? No, my
1: fr- the first band I joined was called Panamia, And uh, we, you know, never really went anywhere. But that was, we, a couple of us, it was the first time we'd ever played instruments. And so we just, you know, strung this backyard hooligan band together and started churning out some punkish hardcore with metal tinge type stuff <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know I uh, started playing shows and you meet people along the way and one of my favorite local bands at the time was actually called this Screamo band and I I went to a lot of their shows and hounded them because they had a singer when I first saw them then they didn't have a singer anymore and were just a four piece and I was like ah oh. <laughs> so i harassed them uh just said let me try out let me let me try out for you guys blah 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 and uh, eventually they caved in and let me try and uh yeah i joined the band and we had a more successful run i suppose and you know cut a record in nashville and did some touring and um they're still good friends and we're actually putting a record out this year as well on um on uh what's austin's label called mind over matter mind over matter Um, so that'll be coming out too. And we just wanted to get back together over COVID and do another record for shits and giggles and see what happened. And I actually really enjoyed the process and we brought kind of new, different energy to it than the old shady side. Uh, it's a little more direct and it's more punk influence, I suppose. Uh, very much different from the burial clouds stuff, you know?
0: How, uh, how long had it, had it been since you guys played?
1: Oh man, like over a decade. Um, we did like some re- random reunion shows at times, but I mean, it was probably, it's probably like 17 years, man.
0: Wow. So it was a trip. That must've been a trip. It really was. Yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and also to get back in the practice space and just realize that it all still kind of gels was, was pretty wild, you know? And we did a couple of reunion shows just to let people know we have got a record coming out recently. And it was, it was just, it was easy and fun and good to hang with the old dudes.
0: How much touring did you do back in the day?
1: Oh, it was by no means like a grueling touring situation. I mean, we did more like, because we were all working and uh, did like weekend type tours, you know, three shows, three or four shows. And and then, you know, you take a break and do it again.
0: How old are you while all this is happening?
1: 21, 22. Yeah. We were together for like, it was about four or five years, but... It was around 20, early 20s.
0: Yeah, I, I did the same thing. I tried to go to college and I kind of, well, not kind of, I failed out. Um, yeah. Half because of partying and half because of just not trying at all. And then I went out on tour with a friend's band and, you know, selling merch. And I I just, I would rather do that than go to school. Yeah, this makes sense. This makes yeah. sense.
1: Well, it's the thing is we, 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 get, we encourage, you know, we, we encourage kids to jump before they're ready. And it's a real crime, man, because we're like encouraging so much debt that so many people just will never be able to crawl out of. Um, It's good for people to have the chance to live their lives a little bit before and find their passions before they jump.
0: Exactly. And you know what? So many people I know talk about school loans and how they'll never pay them off and how they hope they get uh, taken away, you know, in some bill that gets passed or something. And I'm like, you know what? I don't have to worry about that because I didn't go to college. <laughs> uh, it's all working out for me. No, but uh, <laughs> so you're in Shady Side. You're performing. What what happens? Does that band end up breaking up?
1: Yeah. So I basically around that time got into a play begrudgingly at first, but ended up really enjoying it. Um, it
0: was- and talk about that. Like, how did that opportunity come about?
1: I did some like kids playhouse productions when I was a kid. Um, and the director I'd worked with way back then, when I was like eight, was doing some crazy puppetry, um, comedia dell'arte thing at the community college down the way. And he wanted me to audition for it. And I was like, man, I'm not doing that, man. I was in like three bands at the time, but uh I checked out the scripts. I thought it was weird and interesting. And I uh, auditioned, got the role of the villain and, you know, I got some accolades and local awards for my performance and it just kind of gave me a little, I suppose, validation and a a boost. And I was like, man, maybe I could do this. You know, it was just a kind of fun thing to do in the summer. But, uh, yeah, I started auditioning for, for drama schools. I'm a dual citizen. So I, uh, I thought like, you know, if I'm going to go, I want to go like across an ocean, so I uh, I auditioned for schools in England only and got into Lambda, uh, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, and did my BA there. And uh, it was just a clean, clean break. And it was tough because I had to tell the band we were just kind of picking up steam. and But I knew that something in my heart wasn't there, you know, at that point. I needed to do yeah. more. I needed to get out. I, I, you know, people were saying, you're great, you're great. And I never believed them. I was like, nah, this is, I'm not, I'm not, I have more to do. And so I, yeah, I just, I made that break and that's, that was history. And I just basically got a one-way ticket to the UK and I lived there for most of the rest of my twenties and uh, about eight, eight or nine years before coming back to the States.
0: So your teacher remembered you from a grade school production? Oh, yes. You know, my talents uh,
1: were amazing <laughs> back then. Um, no, he, well, it's a small town. You know, he's from Yellow Springs, too, a little t- community I talked about. So, you know, I'd see him around town and stuff. So he, he I, was, I was in his consciousness already. It wasn't for my work back then, I'm sure. <laughs> he probably had seen the stuff I was doing with the band and I suppose who I was as a human, which maybe is what he wanted to, to steal.
0: Yeah, I was thinking maybe you made like such a big splash when you were eight that uh, I had to have you back. <laughs>
1: it's been downhill since, man.
0: <laughs> so um, so when you're in the that first production, I mean, did, do you get acting lessons? How do you get into this character? How do you learn to do what you have to do?
1: Well, back then, I mean, that was when I started doing my first acting classes, like actual classes, which was the community college that I did the production at was offering classes, so I thought I would just get into the plays and be able to take classes and I took a bunch of other like bullshit classes like poetry and yoga, which actually aren't bullshit obviously, but you know, I wasn't doing scholarly things. I wasn't trying to get a degree degree. Um, but yeah, I, I started taking classes there and um that was all I'd done before that particular performance. And then obviously you go to train and it's a super intensive BA program, and you do all the stuff.
0: Did you find it difficult to learn the craft, or did, did you get into it pretty easy? Like, talk about some of your process. Hmm.
1: Well, I think, I mean, at the beginning, you know, a lot of people's perception of being a performer is like, hey, look at me, and wanting to show people how much you enjoy it and relish and everything. And I think it's a common mistake when people are starting out. And one of the biggest lessons I learned was, uh, you're enough as you are, you know, it's interesting when you see somebody walk out on stage and they're not doing anything, but they're just thinking it's fascinating. And you're literally hanging on to small little movements that, um, show you what they're feeling inside, you know? And, um, it took a while to, to tame the malarkey beast <laughs> that, that started training, you know, cause I was definitely very physical. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, my process now is, is is an accumulation of various things that I've picked up along the way, you know, stuff from my training, stuff that I've learned through working with really great actors and also mentors I've had along the way and just life lessons about how to be, how to behave and how to uh, work well in a group, you know, because it's like, it's okay to be good, but if you're an asshole, uh, no one wants to work with you,
0: <laughs> you know what I mean? Did you have uh, certain ticks you had to drop uh, that teachers pointed out to you or stuff like that?
1: Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I was from Ohio doing training in London. So everything was diction,
0: diction. We can't hear you. You're talking
1: out the side of your mouth, you know, like shit like that. <laughs> Cause you know, in Ohio, you know, you're talking out of the side of your mouth all the time. Um, there was definitely elements of the way I was speaking, but also the way I was holding tension. And I think, um, You don't realize you do it, but you know, everybody, some people do obviously, but you don't, you don't realize where you're holding tension until you see yourself on camera (laughs) for the first time doing a scene. And you're like, wow, my shoulders are literally locked, you know, or my jaw, you know, I had a lot of jaw tension. That was my issue. You know, I'd get stressed and I'd clench, you know, uh, there's probably other things too still have them you know there's still things that i watch cuz we do self tapes here that's basically what auditioning has turned into you don't really meet in the room since covid and they haven't really got back to doing in person auditions so we have to watch ourselves all the time when we're selecting tapes and you do you do find stuff that you tend to do and if you can let go of um let go of them and become come from a more neutral place uh, sometimes you can find the character in a more interesting way
0: yeah, it's like whack a mole. New things always pop up, or the same things pop up, and you got to squash them again.
1: That's right. Yep.
0: <laughs> I uh, I hear what you're saying about acting. I took a class in 2018, 19, and we pu- ended up putting on a stage play. And my idea of acting was, I don't know, like big showy pretending or, or something like that. But the lesson that took me a while, because you know, I was I had a character right. And I was so locked into how I thought it should be and Mm. exactly how I should say every line. And I had to let go of all that and throw it away. And I don't know how it happened. But then I had the realization that acting is real. Like Mm -hmm. you're accessing those real feelings. You are expressing real emotion. You are... In the moment, it's not like, "Hey, look at me, I'm putting on this show and i I don't know, I guess some people do that in some sense, and or some styles
1: but, of theater also are a little more like that, I suppose, and panto right and like, like that but
0: or like maybe musicals or something but but real acting is is real
1: yeah, you have to believe man i mean that's that's all it is in my opinion I mean it's as simple and as hard as that, you know you just have to be i mean it's what stanislavsky you know one of the great dramaturgs uh, said, you know, the the magic if, if I am this person in this situation, how would I feel and how would I behave? So you have to really be able to transport yourself into the skin of another. And I mean, that's also the, I suppose, it's it's kind of psychedelic, really, if you think about it.
0: It is one of the most fascinating things is is just staying in the moment in the character, because, you know, we'd be up there doing something and the teacher would be like, why are you over here? Would you do that in real life? You're in this situation and you, you it's just like it's like a trip to just stay in it.
1: It is and you can overthink it too, you know, you can well, yeah, you, you can overthink it. I mean, it's it's finding that balance of being being uh, let, letting the work go once you've done the work as well. I think some people can be so set on the work that they've done that if anything shifts, it throws them completely. You have to be able to be bendable. Malleable, I suppose, and take whatever is thrown your way as the character. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, exactly. You have to be comfortable with just being a fool, basically. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm, I, most of the time, I'm so obsessed with like not looking stupid or sounding stupid or everything. But when I was doing the little bit of acting I did, that's my job. So, wh- whether, whatever embarrassing thing I had to do, throw myself around on stage, sing a song, I just did it because I'm like, this is my job.
1: Excellent. Yeah, you got to be cringe, man. Be cringe and go
0: home. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> now, uh, so when you went to uh, London Academy, uh, do you have to audition to get in there? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a big process. You know, I had to go. There were auditions in New York and Chicago. And, uh, yeah, I auditioned for different schools. So the one in, for Lambda was in Chicago, actually. And you do the preliminary rounds where they come out to see – the potential talent in the wasteland of America. And so I, you go into this dark ass theater, just one guy sitting in the back with a notepad and you have to do what was it? Two contrasting monologues, one contemporary and one classical text or something like that. And uh, then they're like, okay, thank you. You'll hear back from us or not. Um, And yeah, so the next round I had to, I had to fly to London and do the audition there. I had to do duologues with a current Lambda student, as well as more monologues. And uh, I think there were like some kind of workshop that you had to take part in too. But yeah, I remember getting the call. I was working at a Red Lobster, bro, <laughs> <laughs> in uh, in Beaver Creek, Ohio. And I remember seeing the phone ring and it was a London number. Flipped out, ran to the bathrooms, took the call, and he told me I was I was in. It was, a, it was a crazy moment, man. Crazy moment in time.
0: Must have been the best feeling, huh?
1: It was. It was, especially in a Red Lobster toilet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> From Red Lobster to London Academy <laughs> of Music and Dramatic Art in London, you gotta love it. Yeah. Did you tell any of your red lobster coworkers like what you were doing? Where I mean, what was their reaction?
1: I must have. I mean, I can't remember. I was a massive stoner at the time, so <laughs> I uh I my memory bank is, is pretty vacant around those years. But um I, I must have done. Yeah. They probably didn't
0: understand it fully. So uh I mean, talk about going over there. That must have been pretty scary, right? One way ticket. I, I assume you're by yourself, yes? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Were you it, terrified? I, I wasn't terrified. I mean, I, so I, I was born in Beirut, actually, in Lebanon. And, you yes. know, I've been traveling ever since then. We'd go away for summers. And I was pretty traveled up to that point. So I wasn't scared about it. I think the thing that became intimidating, I suppose, was um, feeling like a misfit. Uh, not that that was new to me, but um, on a grand scale in a city with millions of people in it coming from Dayton, which was the biggest city I'd ever lived in before that. And, um, you know, the trains and buses and everything, but also being understood, you know, I, like I said, I had that Ohio (laughs) (laughs) drawl, And so it just became very hard. I I felt like I was always having to repeat myself and it was, it was drove me nuts for a bit, but, and so my accent naturally assimilated a bit over the years. Now there's certain echoes of it, but, Maybe about five years ago, it was very, very transatlantic. But no, I mean, I'm used to being an outsider. I went to a lot of different schools and, um, I'm comfortable with that. I like it. Okay. You know,
0: yeah. So you're not a complete fish out of water. You had some world travel in you. You were, you were ready for this.
1: Yeah. It was a logical next step. I think if we're talking biography.
0: So from th- that school, you end up getting in some stage plays and the, the career is slowly building, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I picked up an agent after our last showcase and started working. It took about a year. I, I started working in pubs and doing random events and things like that. Started playing out again as well, like little little live, little acoustic thing. And, yeah. And uh, eventually, yeah, I got my first play, which was a double bill of Beyond the Horizon and Springstorm at uh, the Royal and Gate in Northampton which ended up transferring to the national theater in London, which was a huge deal. I was playing the lead in both plays. And so for my first proper gig, I found myself like straight into the frying pan, you know, at the (laughs) national for a sold out run. And, uh, yeah, it was definitely nerve wracking at first because this is the place that I always wanted to perform at. It was like the place I wanted to perform at, to be honest. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was great. I learned so much. I felt like I was still training during that whole run because I was learning new things every day. And also being around an institution like that where they're just churning out plays and they have great actors come through. You know, you, you meet people like, you know, Ben Cumberbatch and Simon Russell Beale in the hallways. You're like, what's up? You know, all these people. And you're like part of this theater institution all of a sudden it was, was extremely. Imposter syndrome <laughs> for me at first.
0: I, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it, you realize it's just a community like any other. Like the play I was in, it was the first play I'd been in since uh, sixth grade and I got the lead in it. So I felt like I was thrown in the frying pan and you're with great actors like some of them have been in a lot of stuff some of them haven't and then you know weeks later i see them in little bit parts on tv and i'm like oh my god this is like wow this is just another scene like any other
1: it's wild man i mean that's that astounds me too because you know i watch movies or shows and there's there's always someone i know or my friend knows or something like that and it would have seemed so far-fetched back in the day but you know the more you work the more the circle expands I mean, it's as simple as that you work with different people who know other people. And, um, you know, all of a sudden you look back and you're like, wow, I've kind of come a long way.
0: How did you get those initial gigs? Did you have the agent already?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, So there you go. Yeah. It was through, through my agency in London.
0: how how does that work? Do you meet people through the school and then you get hooked up with an agent? Like, how does that work?
1: Yeah, I mean, the top drama schools always do a series of showcases for the final year students, you know, several plays. Um, Usually, each actor will have an opportunity to have a a somewhat decent role in in at least one of the productions. And that's the one that you normally target to invite people to. Um, But they they come to a lot of them because it's one of the top schools. So, you know, I um, I got interest from the show that I probably had more of the bigger role
0: in. Nice, and you continued playing music throughout this, yes? I did, yeah. You said uh, just just playing solo gigs here and there.
1: Yeah, well, actually, you know what? I got my my time mixed up a little bit. I started doing the music a few uh, playing playing at least. I was writing the whole time, but I started playing when I I, I got the role of Elvis Presley. You know that guy. Um <laughs> oh I've heard of him yeah. <laughs> supposed to be pretty good. Um yeah. In Million Dollar Quartet the original London production which was about Sun Records and I it was another one where I was like how did I get this role this is ridiculous. I was I was reading for Johnny Cash. I thought that was more suitable but yeah I booked Elvis and I was like okay guess I got to do this thing and uh it was a real uh stretch of I, I grew a lot as as a musician through that. I also was doing Elvis 56. So I was having, and I'm a bass baritone. So I was having to really reach for That's All Right Mama and uh, the other old school tracks. So it pushed my range a bit. It also, I was playing every night for a year, you know, uh, and uh, 2000 people. And it just kind of gave me that extra nudge being like, yo, you could, you know, why aren't you doing this with your music, dude, do it. You know, you like your song. Surely other people will, at least some people will connect with them. So uh, around that time I started playing at random open mics and set up a couple solo shows and yeah.
0: When you're uh, when you're playing those shows are you playing as you or Elvis? No, I'm playing as me. Yeah, I'd play all, only
1: just originals. Like I don't really do cover songs or anything. I've done maybe two in my life. It's just never had an interest to do other people's stuff.
0: When you're playing those solo gigs, does that help you out with the role like preparing as Elvis too?
1: No, I always kind of felt like it was a separate separate thing.
0: So okay, they're separate things. And yeah. I kind
1: of started doing it a part three quarters of the way through the run cuz I was pretty focused during that time trying to trying to kind of stay on ta- task, you know.
0: When you first started playing solo gigs, was it difficult for you? I've done one solo acoustic gig ever and i feel that it did not go very well but (laughs) but i i didn't put enough time in and i covered a a sparta song and i feel like that was not very good either but (laughs) i got through it i didn't like stop and forget a, a song or something like it wasn't a disaster like that i just felt like i wasn't very good but how was it for you
1: yeah i mean well we we get in our own heads don't we um yeah and you know for me i've 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 never been a fully. I mean, I'm a good guitar player, but I've never thought of myself as a great guitar player. And especially when I was starting out, I was I had a lot of my brain focused on not messing up the guitar parts because I always used to write a lot of stuff that I could barely play. You know, a lot of weird finger picking stuff, and it just uh, I like stuff that's not straight down the barrel. You know, um, and so yeah, I was I, I always felt slightly like I wasn't there for at least the first half of the show because I was so focused on trying to get it right. And it took a long time for that to stop. Now, if anything, I'll have like the first song or two and then I'm in it, you know,
0: I'm back. I mean, like anything else, you just have to keep doing it until you That's figure right. it out.
1: That's right. You know? Yeah. it's the secret to success, man. In a way. That's it. Yeah.
0: You have to, You have, and I, I say this on the show all the time, you have to embrace being bad. There's no shortcuts. Everyone goes through their growth period.
1: You you don't learn if you don't fuck up. Exactly. You know, and I think my greatest life lessons are when I've put myself out there and I have fallen on my ass and uh, had to pick myself up and go, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, 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 I strive for perfection. So when bad things happen now, I try to remind myself, like, you will learn from this. Mm-hmm. It's not the end of the world. It's important to have that voice, though.
1: Not everyone has that voice, you know, you have to tap into that subconscious and, uh, you know, that, that, the subconscious is never fearful. It's never intimidated. It's not, you know, uh, this, that, and the other, it, it observes. So if you can tap into your powers of observing yourself, then you can actually change those parts, right? At least in my experience, in my hippie life. (laughs) No, I,
0: I, I'm with you on that. And I think, uh. I think if the desire is strong enough for whatever you're doing, you will continue doing it. Like yourself, you know, you kept performing in bands. You kept up with music. You pursued acting. You're moving to London to, to learn the craft at this, uh, at this school. You are continuing with stage plays. Like, like there's things in my life I've done once and it didn't go well. And I'm like, well, that's it. Like I, I tried DJing before I didn't know what I was doing. I stopped. I tried stand-up comedy for a while. I really didn't like it. I stopped. But uh, acting I took as far as I could, and music has always been a thing. So if you're really in it, if your heart's truly in it, you will just continue doing it like you have.
1: Yeah, well, there's there's something that prevents you from stopping. You know, it's it's this this engine inside of you that's just like constantly seeing the world or feeling the world in, in that way. And for me, it's through music. You know, it's just how I connect with the world and myself, I suppose. Um, And I can't turn that off. You know, I mean, I can turn it off for a bit when I need to take a job and pay the bills or whatever. But like, it always comes back creeping. (laughs) If I've got it, if I have a shit week and I realize I haven't played guitar for a week, it's usually why. You know, I play and it sorts it out.
0: (laughs) Music has always been the constant in my life. And it sounds like yours, too. I did the opposite thing. uh I wasted a lot of years getting high and just uh dropping out of life. And then once I stopped doing that, I picked music back up. And then I was trying desperately to hold this band together that I had put together and it just wasn't working. And at the same time, the acting class and the play came up, so you know, I felt life taking me in that direction. So I went in that direction. And then music became a priority again. So I put acting behind and circled back to music. And it sounds like you've done the same thing, you know, like uh, you're in music, right? Acting, uh, you feel your life guiding you toward the acting, and then you go in that direction. I think we just need to listen to what the world is telling us, you know, and, and go with that.
1: That's, that's true, man. I mean, and I, I you know, I, I believe in serendipity to a degree. So, you know, sometimes doors open, or sometimes you see a door, and you wonder if you should open it or not. And... uh you know, it's how, you know, just, just to segue to Burial Clouds, this record we got coming out, Um, that's kind of how that happened. You know, it just sort of fell into my lap in a weird way. And I was like, let's just, let's go for it. Let's give it a shot.
0: Talk about that. How did you hook up with this band? When did it happen? How did it happen?
1: Yeah, so it was over COVID, I had just taken a, very long RV trip with my family because we couldn't fly to a house that we bought blind (laughs) because times were fucking weird, man. And, uh, yeah, we, we got here, got to the house and, um, I wanted to scream. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's as simple as that. No, I, not as simple as that. But I, I, Wait,
0: do, did you want to scream uh, because you wanted to create music or did you want to <laughs> scream because the house was a piece of crap? Uh,
1: no, not because of that, but because of the current situation and politics, all the bullshit that was going on. But also, I, I really, you know, all the music I was listening to at that time was heavy music. I was getting really back into digging again as well like finding out new bands finding out all the new labels and I kind of got back into that record store mentality and uh yeah I just wanted to do it again I missed it and so yeah basically I I was on this is somewhat ridiculous but uh Ben Kohler I've become kind of friends with him online over the years and you know met him a couple of times he's a good dude and I saw this comment on one of his pages from this handle called Burial Clouds as I was probably doom scrolling. I remember, it's 2020. Um, and it, the comment was clever and amusing. And I was like, you know what? Who are these guys? This looks like a band. And I clicked on it. And right on the front of their bio, it said they were looking for a singer, but they were based in Portland. So I was like, okay. I'll check the record out. Let's see. And so I checked it out and immediately I just got this rush of like, this sounds like ISIS chords, you know, like uh, it's got that sludgy grunge energy as well. I felt like it was a killer mashup of uh, influences that I really um, knew and dug. So I just reached out and I was like, yo, I'm, I'm based in Atlanta. So you probably are going to say no, but you mind if I try to throw some vocals on one of these tracks? And um, they were like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And uh, I did. And uh, we worked back and forth a bit. They asked me to like cut the vocals at one point, try something new here, and I did. And uh, they dug it, and then I ended up just doing the whole record like that from my garage uh, before flying out there and cutting the record at a cabin in Portland. And uh, that was the, the beginning of it.
0: When did you fly out there to record?
1: It would have been... It would have been about a, a, probably a year later or something. So, actually, it was the beginning of 2022.
0: Okay. I'm trying to uh, place the timeline in terms of COVID because, you know, it's like, well, number one, I can't uh, comprehend time anymore because no, of me that two years we lost. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'm just curious about people, how, how people navigate during that time and what's going on.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was 20, 2022, spring.
0: So by 2022, things are open back up. We can fly there, no mm-hmm. problem, right? Yeah. So what was it like? Had you met the band in person at all? Did, I mean, was was this the first time you were going to meet them when you flew out there to record?
1: It was, and you know, it's one of those things where you just you trust the universe, I suppose. You know, because it could have really been horrible. And you get there and these guys stink, the you know, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I got a good vibe initially from Matt, who's who's our main songwriter and who coined Burial Clouds, who's just a phenomenal musician, but also just super humble and uh, full of ideas. And, um, you know, like me, it, it's it's all about best idea wins. You know, my ego has been smashed through being an actor over the years. So I, I'm a fan of just throwing shit off, you know, throwing shit at the wall and seeing what works. And he was game for that. So we'd send stuff back and forth. You know, I'd say, dude, tell me if anything sucks, I'll redo it. Um, It's just the first investigation. And um, so I got a really good vibe from him just as a person. Um, And I I think my radar is pretty good for humanity. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, I flew in and we did it. But uh, which is the crazy part about this is you remember I told you about that band Panamia, first band I started? Yes. So our first guitarist in that band, Aaron, he lives in Portland too, and then I heard Matt was looking for an additional guitarist for Burial Clouds. I put him forward, and now he's in the band. So You're I, kidding! me. So I have a dude who was in my original band in the band with me as well, which is which is a wild turn of events. And talk about serendipity, you know what I mean?
0: It's so weird how life works out like that sometimes, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah, I think you got to embrace it when it does. Yeah, and this is an important lesson in. Not being afraid to say yes. Like I remember when my friend asked me to go to that acting class, my initial first initial thought was to say no. And I'm so happy I didn't because it's like the one Cinderella story in my life. You know, go to the class for the first time, do a scene for the first time. Everyone's blown away. Here you have the lead in the play, just like that. And that's a memory I'll cherish forever. And you with this band you know, like they live in Portland, you live in Atlanta. I'm sure you're super busy. So maybe you thought like, am I even going to have time for this? Can I pull it off? But you took a chance and and now it's working out.
1: Yeah. the The biggest hitch obviously is like touring and stuff like that, but we're just trying to cross these bridges as they come. You know, I also, I have this thing where I'll sometimes shut things down because I'm foreseeing, uh, problems you know what i mean like well that's not going to work i'm going to be a disappointment because i'll have to pull out of this or whatever and it's like you know you just got to go and see what happens and cross each bridge as you come to it because otherwise you sacrifice potential life experiences you know
0: do it and see if people are willing to work with you you know and obviously it sounds like these guys are willing to work with you and you're willing to work with them so let's take it as far as we can go right
1: Yeah. And I, I, you know, I gave him full transparency as well. I was like, look, my life is very hectic. Uh, You know, I also have young kids right now. I, if you wanted to go with another singer because of that, if you're looking to like do really extensive touring and stuff, you know, do it. Um, But I think we all just believed so firmly in this record and what we'd created together that it didn't matter. It's like we're at least creating this piece of art that we can share with people. Hopefully we'll get to, play uh play out more than we we are and uh but at the end of the day it's all about sharing something. You know, it's a gift to the world, I suppose.
0: Have you performed live with the band yet?
1: Yeah, we did our first shows when the sing first single was had, had dropped um out in the Pacific Northwest.
0: Where'd you play? How was
1: it? It was High Water Mark, Portland, and Substation, Seattle. It was great. Um the only hitch is we were, were kind of in between drummers, it was terrible timing. So we were like, let's just do it anyway and let's use processed drums and the smoke machine instead of the drum kit. Um <laughs> but it actually worked. I mean we had time to embed it and it actually sounded really good. Um but the shows we got coming up this weekend are uh we, we've got a drummer on board, so that'll be a a different experience. But yeah, it went well, man. I was I was pleasantly surprised especially cause I just flew in one night practiced once for the first time with this band and then we're doing shows. So I was a little stressed about that just cause I hadn't had time to embed it. And also without having a drummer there, I found it very bizarre. I, I just like, I, I'm so used to feeling a drummer for timing. Um, Not only visually, but just the, the energy, you know, and um, without that it was almost like you had to, I don't know. Uh, it, was, it was, it was, it was weird. But it ended up working. Once you knew that was what was going on, you kind of sit with it and it works.
0: Where do you practice the songs, record the songs? Like, how does it work?
1: Um, well, they practice at a practice space in Portland, instrumentally. Yeah. Um, and here, I don't practice. I just turn <laughs> turn up and fucking shred, man. <laughs> I mean, I'll, oh, do, yeah? I'll do a couple run throughs with my PA in the garage and just Blast it through the speaker, um, just to kind of make sure it's still there. But I mean, the thing is, when, when you write everything and go through an extensive demoing and recording process, the songs are pretty in your bones, you know?
0: Ah, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, you, you just know, you know what you need to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing for me was kind of, I'm used to performing as, as myself, as, as a more whatever artist my solo stuff is. And it's kind of rewiring the, uh, intensity and the energy. And, uh, I don't know, it's like you under a magnifying glass, when you're doing heavy music, you have to kind of lift it out a little bit more, I suppose. And, um, I used to do it. So it, it just took me a minute and I was like, Oh yeah, it's this thing. And your your body and your voice steps back into that, you know, suit. I suppose.
0: you. Uh, I know that you uh, have been performing solo for quite some time. I think two th- since 2014, right? At least. At least, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, was there, ever, was there ever a period where you had to walk away from music for a number of years before you picked it back up? Or have you always been performing at least solo some of the times? Hmm.
1: Um, when I've, uh, like, I did a show called Project Blue Book, which was about the whole uh, air force, uh, alien situation of the fifties, right. It was a period piece uh, where I was, you know, one of the two main guys. So that was a very all encompassing shoot, you know, like very, uh, grueling, but amazing. But during that time, like when I'm shooting, you know, it's, it's, I'm out, it's out. I won't be performing, but I do have my lap- laptop in the dressing room. And if I have long breaks, I'll, you know, get in and, work on some music, but, uh, usually during those times I take a break, but yeah, I do a lot of full band tours as well. You know, I've toured with full band shows across Europe several times and solo, the first solo tour I did was actually, um, last year. I never like toured solo before, just like one-off shows here and there. It's usually with the band when I tour.
0: So first full solo tour was last year?
1: I think so. 2022. Oh, wow. 2022. Yeah. 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 How did that go? Yeah, it was good. But it was one of these also where COVID was just finishing up and uh I'd been living reclusively on my lot here and it was getting back into a crowd of people right in front of you staring at you was actually a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I I had my first show, it was a very intimate kind of like warm-up show and uh you know, it was packed house and uh yeah, I found I found it I went into like early Connor Oberst mode, you know, <laughs> uh, but it took a minute and then I got back into it just like anything, you know, riding a bike.
0: Yeah. It's you know, it's uh there's been years where I haven't picked up a guitar or years between bands, but once you get back into it and start drilling it, it comes back very quickly. I find. Mm-hmm. I think so too. So, would that tour that was that to support your EP that came out last year, Strays?
1: Yeah, yeah, Strays, and uh, yeah, I've got another one in the works. It kind of had a, a setback with it. It was supposed to be uh, coming out earlier this year or mid mid year, but I um I kind of changed tact with the engineer and kind of reworking it a little bit. So, but I do have a bunch of solo stuff that's being finished. Uh, In June. So, there will be another EP coming out soon, too. Don't know when, but sometime.
0: So, yeah. And I also want to remind everyone to check out Burial Clouds. Now, we have two singles out now, Beirut Shores and Cloud Splitter. But by the time this comes out, by the time you hear these words I'm saying right now, Last Days of a Dying World will be out on Church Road Records. And Michael, I really like the band. I mean, what you described earlier, it's like the perfect blend of Isis-style post-metal, post-rock, whatever you want to call it. And I like the really grungy parts. It's like the, you know, like the dirtier sounding Nirvana-type songs and there's a the touch of doom as well. And I don't really like doom metal. It's just not my thing. It's too slow, but you know, when you mix in that element with everything else Burial Clouds has going on, I really like it. So I'm Really looking forward to hearing the whole record.
1: That's awesome to hear, man. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the, the thing is with Doom, there's some great Doom out there, but a lot of it's predictable. And I think what we, we wanted to do with this, and I think why they were interested in working with me, is is kind of trying to humanize it a bit more. Because um, my initial thing with, with doing vocals, I thought I'd just be doing more monotone screaming over top of it. Um, and uh he was like, No, you should you should use some of the stuff that you've got in your toolkit, man. Like, why waste that? And I was like, Okay, well give it a go. And I mean it, it it took a minute to really find that sound because it's a lot of different singing styles. And my initial worry was like, is that gonna be too too eclectic? Will it all tie together? You know what I mean?
0: It does. Yeah. That's another thing that surprised me. I, I expected you know, I just without knowing anything. I expected just a straight ahead, heavy band for whatever reason. But then I listened to the song and it starts off very slow and you're singing and I'm like, oh, it's this kind of band. And then later it gets heavier and you're you're screaming and I'm like, oh, and it does it does work together very well, seamlessly. It's not just like, you know, sometimes with when a band has different sounds, it could be like you could It's like on the chopping block, like here's this part, here's mm. this part, but mm-hmm. this, this isn't like that. It's very seamless.
1: Well, that's amazing to hear.
0: What kind of things do you write about as the front man?
1: Well, um, I'd been getting into a lot of history and geopolitics and a lot of stuff that was happening and that has always been happening in the Middle East. Um, and uh, I kind of wanted to find a way to... I don't know, sing about that stuff in a kind of convoluted poetic way. And it felt forced when I was doing it with my solo stuff. And I felt like this was a great avenue for me to explore that a bit. So, you know, there's a lot of big themes hidden hidden, hidden inside the colorful imagery. You know, this very anti-imperialist take on things. But yeah, I kind of like to keep it in that realm slightly. The music's cinematic and epic. So I feel like it, it, that kind of thing supports that content. And I, you know, I also just didn't want to talk about myself. Uh, there's, I think maybe the, the, the word I is in there maybe two or three times, the whole record. I wanted it to be about us, not about me.
0: Yeah, I feel that because I, I've written about myself so much over the years that I get sick of it. So mm-hmm. whatever bad thing I went through recently, like that old be in parts of the song <laughs> right. or I'll just, I'll just pull an abstract thing from another piece of art and make it my own or I don't know, you know, whatever, whatever is on my mind.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of how i have been operating with my solo stuff up until recently too. And I suppose I've been wanting to branch out with that as well. And I haven't even been using the guitar for the, the new EP. It's all written on, I don't know if I said this already, but it's all been written on like bass and synth and, drums and things. So, oh yeah. And yeah, I wanted to kind of push it out of the singer songwriter realm a bit, you know, because it just, you know, you you get, you get bored, you get bored. And I found when I pick up the guitar, I'll, I'll often, you know, your, 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 your hands have their limitations. Right. And you end up falling into similar chord progressions and patterns. And then your voice automatically, goes into that style. And I've just found it so annoying at a certain point. So (laughs) I was like, well, how do I break this up? And I think a big part of it was putting down the guitar and working with keys. And it just opened up uh, some different ideas and ways of singing and uh, loosened things up. So the, the new stuff is a little looser. It's a little more like bowie-ish at times it's got kind of r&b elements to it like it's kind of eclectic still and indie sounding but it's definitely different than the stuff we've heard before
0: i like that yeah i mean we're one person with one mind right we can only do so much especially on guitar because there's you know there's just not a whole lot you can do for anybody there's a limited number of chords so i think it's good to experiment and try other stuff
1: Yeah, and, you know, I was around that time, too. I was talking to friends. I was like, yo, send me shit. (laughs) Send me shit I could put vocals on. Send me beats, whatever. I'll flow. I don't care. Give me something so I can break myself out of this mold, you know. And, I mean, it's, it's around that time because I was reaching out to different people that I was looking to find something like this, I suppose, you know, like burial clouds where I could get people to send me stuff that's super intricate and have a chance to fuck around with it.
0: When you record solo, do you play everything?
1: Uh, oh, when I record, when I record my demos, yeah. But in the studio, um, it depends. I mean, there's, like on Strays, it was just me and my producer playing everything. Um, Grave Racer, I, uh, which is my last full-length LP, I demoed the whole thing, writing almost all the parts, and then had, had my musicians come in and uh, lay them down properly. Because, you know, I'm, I can play the bass, but... I can't play it like my guy. (laughs) So, but yeah, I liked, I definitely have very descriptive, not descriptive, but full demos where I'll I'll write out all the parts, you know.
0: How did uh, Burial Clouds hook up with Church Road? Did you send them the record after it was recorded or was there a pre-existing relationship?
1: I, yeah, so we we cut the record, we did it ourselves um, and then started pitching it. I was, it was pretty much went down like that, and I reached out uh, to the select labels that I had either contacts in or new bands on them, and um, yeah, Church Road was the one that came back around the, the quickest, and um, I knew their reputation, I knew their records, I, the label's fantastic, you know, they just are putting out killer records time and again and they're also branching out like in style so it's quite collective eclectic their roster
0: oh yeah i mean just great company to be in on that label and i've had a lot of their bands on my show so excellent stuff
1: yeah and they're they're great people genuinely good people um and we do have a, a mutual friend uh two mutual friends you know i'm uh i don't know if you know the group a.a a. williams out of the uk but um We've toured together and stuff. Um, and uh, they used to be on Holy Roar, which I believe Justine also used to be on. And so they had that connection. And it was one of those things like, hey, are they cool? They're like, yeah, they're really cool. And uh, that was enough I, enough for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, Church Road uh, inherited a lot of the Holy Roar bands, or yeah. some of them, right? Yeah. yeah. So we've got the Burial Clouds record coming out. We've got more solo music to look forward to. What about in terms of acting? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot going on there as well, right?
1: Yes? Maybe? Also got the Shady Side record. I might as well plug that while we're here. Yeah, the Shadyside record, which will be coming out this year too. Don't know when yet, but watch this space. Over and out. Um, Acting-wise, <laughs> uh, let's see. I'm, I'm doing a movie with a buddy here in Atlanta, uh, and it's the writer's strike right now. So a lot of stuff is on hold. So I'm kind of in a bit of a limbo situation, just waiting for things to kick back back up and for the studios to get their shit together and pay people properly. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of it's kind of in limbo right now. I just did some Law and Order this year. I did a few episodes of Organized Crime, which was fun. And uh, yeah, just waiting for the next gig.
0: How did you transition from the stage to television? Uh, does that start in the UK, or do you fly back here and and start that up?
1: It started in the UK. I did some did a couple like really horrible drama documentaries. Uh dreadful. In my first short <laughs> film where you know, he talked about noticing your tension. I was I was playing a cowboy in it and my accent was all in my mouth. <laughs> it, it was painful to watch. But yeah, there were some early early TV things in the UK. I did also Mr. Sloan with Nick Frost and Olivia Coleman, and a show in Ireland as well. I did, I did a few bits, but then the big, the big show that I got a part of was Vampire Diaries, which I had to fly back to the States for the first time in like eight or nine years. And um, yeah, that's, that's what made me relocate back here. Otherwise, I probably would have stayed in, in, um, in London.
0: When did you uh, figure out that that role was going to be recurring and that you'd be a regular on the show?
1: So I got booked for, I think it was like a three-episode arc and um, went back home to the UK for Christmas and booked another job. And so due to the contract, because there was some crossover, I had to take that back to the Vampire Diaries Cats. And they expressed the desire to keep me, and so they ended up kind of – going back and forth. And uh, I ended up sticking with them, flying back out, and they signed me on as a regular at that point. So I'd done three episodes, and then I ended up doing four seasons.
0: That's got to be great, right? I'm sure the pay is better, and it's a steady gig, which is not the easiest thing in the world to get when you're acting.
1: I'd love one right now. I've got repairs <laughs> to do on my house. Uh, you hear that, y'all? Um <laughs> But yeah, no, it was, it was the first time I had a st- steady TV gig and the first time I'd been paid like that before, you know? Um, so it's definitely hard to go back to theater after you get paid like that. But, you know, uh, as with anybody who's not used to having money, I fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> not completely, but man, if I could turn back time, you know, I would have cut certain things out of my life et cetera, et cetera. Um, so
0: you, uh, you, you fucked it up in terms of finances, you're saying?
1: Yeah. I just, you know, you get to that point where you're just, you're not checking receipts and you're getting messy and, you know, you know, you have some dough. So you're just like, well, I'll get this today. I'll get that, you know? And so you just end up just being stupid with it.
0: See that, that's what I was going to ask you if you're good with saving money and finances and all that stuff, because I think, especially as an actor and someone working in the arts full time, you have to be to some degree.
1: You, you should. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Um, I've had to learn that the hard way, you know.
0: Yeah. I that's a That's a hard lesson that I learn over and over. There'll be times where I'm flush and I just order stuff. Oh, I need this. Oh, I need that. I got a pile of Amazon boxes in my living room that I haven't even opened, like pieces of equipment that cost hundreds of dollars. And then all of a sudden it's gone and the high wears off. And I'm like, oh no, I have to like I sell that uh, shit. Fru- <laughs> I sell it now. <laughs> I have to be frugal again.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a bizarre profession in that respect. You know, everyone thinks you're loaded when you're an actor, and then you know who you are. But it's just it's not the case. You know, also more more money, more money, more problems. Right?
0: Of course, yeah.
1: But but also our, our jobs are so sporadic. You know, you could have a year you don't work at all, and then all you're doing is eating away at the money you made on the last job. So it's this right. real crazy roller coaster ride not only financially but you know psychosomatically.
0: But uh you're in the good position that it seems like you're landing fairly regular good roles, right? You've had a a recurring character on the show for 3 years. That's great, right? Mhm. So I mean a lot of actors it see it it could go either way like some people knock it out of the park right away right when they start like look at Brendan Fraser he had a he had a pretty storied career things were taken off right away and then there's other actors you see like Brian Cranston he's doing bit parts and tv shows and then 40, 20 30 years later or whatever lands breaking bad and that Dealing sends myth. him off into <laughs> yeah sends him off into the stratosphere it's like it can go it just it can go in any number of directions yeah
1: it's so true and I think you know a lot of the common stories there are perseverance. Exactly. Know, and pushing through, you know, uh, at great odds sometimes. Um but yeah, it's it's a, it's a wild one. I mean, I go through phases where it's just it's too annoying to have to be sitting around waiting. You know, you have to kind of create your own stuff, I suppose. Uh, my only issue is I end up you doing that with music when, you know, there's always this voice in my head going, why aren't you doing what you do with music with the acting? You know, create your own projects, get them off the ground, you know, it'll pay you more. <laughs> but I just can't get away from the music. It just it means a lot to me and uh, it keeps me sane.
0: That's a good point, too. Like, there's a lot of actors who, you know, they get put in a couple movies and it's not working out. So they're right. they write their own thing. And that sends them off into the stratosphere. Have you had any ideas or, or have you uh, ever tried to put something down on paper?
1: Yeah, I've written a script, which I plan to direct and act in someday. I should probably do make that day soon before I lose interest. That's my issue also is I'll have like, uh, you know, I'm a sprinter and I get like super excited about a project and idea and I run, run, run and I crush it and I get it all to a place where I love it. And, and, if nothing happens at a certain point, and I don't look at that thing for half a year, it's dead to me, and it's something I got to work on. I know it's a a flaw. We'll call it. Don't leave your pretty things behind, man.
0: Scripts take like decades sometimes to, to even make it to getting filmed. So true. Yeah. yeah,
1: but I will one
0: day. You could be sitting on the next Rocky. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's
1: the exact it's the exact plot. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I will one day. I mean, with Blue Book, you know, I was gonna direct the season three before it ended, so I, I, I definitely had it on my plate as something that I was gonna get into. And then everything, like you said, got weird. Took three years out, and you know, a lot of reevaluations happened. And yeah, I just got to get that moving again. Thanks for reminding
0: me. <laughs> no problem. I'm I'm here for you, Michael. <laughs> Thanks, bro. Thanks. <laughs> Do you audition? Like, how does it work? Does your agent bring you things and say, like, here it is? Or do you go and audition for big things? Like, is it a combination of both?
1: It's. I mean, usually my my agents send me tapes every week for me to, to do and send back. Um, but, I mean, lately I've been booking a lot through just people I've worked with before and my own connections. I mean, the audition scene right now is, is pretty grim because they're not meeting you they're just seeing your tape, I worry that it's a Tinder swipe fest. You know, you're going to watch a few seconds and be like, nah, he don't look right. And yet we've spent like hours trying to get this tape for you guys. You know what I mean? Yeah, you kind of have to be proactive in that respect and keep your connections and uh, reach out to people. You see they're working on something. Be like, yo, hey, is there a spot for me? And there's a part of you that has to be shameless in that respect because I've been rewarded when I have been shameless. In this respect, not every respect.
0: It's got to be hard in the beginning because with acting, you know, in bands, you're, you maybe you have other people in the band, you have other people to back you up. But with acting, it's very surface, right? Like, it's you on the tape and the uh, the person watching it giving you the role can be like, wrong look, wrong voice, wrong physique. It's like very apparent that it's just you that's not working. That's, I mean, that's got to be hard probably to deal with in the beginning, right? In the beginning,
1: yes. I mean, yeah. you, you, you realize later on what that's about, and it's it's nothing to do with you. Right. Um, if, if, you're, if you're good at what you do. You know, they're thinking of so many different factors. They're thinking of the poster and what you look like next to the other lead. Uh, they're thinking about your eye color, you know, like stupid shit.
0: It's like the lottery. You just got to keep playing for years and years, and then you hope it's going to pay off at some point.
1: Unfortunately... It's a good analogy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, Michael, I mean, you've already done so much. There's bound to be more good things coming.
1: There's more to come, baby.
0: That's right. I'm ready. That's right. So let's recap. Now, we got to check out the Burial Clouds record, Last Days of a Dying World. It's out there right now by the time you hear this. We want people to hear that, right, Michael? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, very excited for people to go on the journey. And? Shady Side.
0: Is there a release date or anything for that yet? There's
1: not a release date. We're um, uh, we're cooking ahead, though. We got like the test pressings and everything, and we're just finalizing art, so it's it's coming. But that'll be on Mind Over Matter Records, hopefully uh, in the fall.
0: And of course, there's Michael Malarkey solo. Yeah. Strays the EP just came out last year, but you have quite a bit of music under your own name as well. Yes, sir. Yep. Yes. And if you want to see Michael in any of his roles, we've got several seasons of Vampire Diaries and a bunch of other stuff you've been in.
1: Yeah, check out Project Blue Book. That's a good one. You'll like that. It's Robert Zemeckis as well. So, you know, you'll know that. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: I like uh, that. That's the UFO thing you were talking about, right? Like the FBI UFOs in the 50s? Yeah. That sounds up my alley. I like that. I, I Sometimes I dive in and research that stuff to try to figure out if it's real or not. It's real. Uh when you were working on that Michael did the FBI did the actual FBI or CIA come in and try to cover anything up?
1: Um not at my level of awareness. <laughs> but they did pull the plug on the show so you never know.
0: Yeah, it could have been them. Could have been I them. heard I remember hearing back in the day when Independence Day came out like the the US military was going to help the production mm-hmm. until they found out they were going to mention Area 51 and then they withdrew their support.
1: Well, there's a, a dark history of infiltration in cinema, uh, as you may or may not be aware of. You know, they've they have Explain. their they well they have their paws on a lot of stuff. You know, and if you're going to be mentioning them, they 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 will often add a scene or something that paints them in a little more of a, a good light. And it's you know it's <laughs> obviously very much leaning on the we're the good guys and they're the bad guys type stuff. You know, which yeah, which is um, obviously very one, one-sided at, at its least. So I won't go too far into that. You know, I want to keep working, but.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe uh, I was about to dive in more there, but you know what, Michael, I like you. I want you to continue working and I want to remain alive. So you know what? Thumbs up to everybody. How about that? <laughs> Love it. Well, Michael, this has been great. I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Really looking forward to the new music. So. Thank you.
1: Thank you, brother. Appreciate you taking the time, man. Thank you all for listening.
0: And there you have it. Michael Malarkey. Great to talk to Michael. It's nice to be able to talk to somebody about acting and music. And he does both, and he does it well. You know, even before I was a music guy, I was way into film, television, acting. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be a director when I was in grade school, and then my love of music crept in and took over. So it's just great to hear about the craft, how he did it, how he went to school, the whole process. Fascinating to be able to hear that, in addition to the music he's been making his whole life. Burial Clouds. Have you heard the record yet? Last Days of a Dying World. Check it out. Super, super good stuff. Think like a grungier, doomier Isis. It's, uh, I really dig it. So yeah, just an overall great conversation. Great to talk to you, Michael. Thank you for coming on the show. All right, so let's check in. How are we doing? I'm doing okay okay, okay, I'm suffering from burnout again. I'm doing too much, working all the time, not going out enough, not taking enough leisure time. But listen, that's the way it is right now. I'll fix it at some point. This weekend, it's pouring rain the whole weekend. So I'm making sure to take a lot of time for me because I felt myself bordering on burnout again yesterday. And I don't want that to happen. But the good news is the new scene has been mentioned in a couple of publications. The PRP quoted us in an article about Converge from our conversation with Kurt Ballou and their re-release of The Dusk in Us. So that was nice to get a mention there. And our interview with Dennis Lixen is making the rounds that got mentioned on Metal Injection. They did an article about it. Thank you, Life from Loam, for Pointing that out to me, I didn't even see it until you posted it. And now Lamgoat has written an article about the same interview. And they're quoting the part of the interview where Dennis is talking about how it's harder than ever for bands to make a living on the road or even tour anymore. I asked him if he thinks it's better now for bands than it was in the past, and he said, No. The long answer is way more complicated than that, because I think that being a touring musician has never been this hard, which is problematic because I think that in the years to come, you will see a lot of bands calling it quits, and you will see a lot of bands that will stop touring, because it is almost impossible to make a living playing music. So I read the comments section for these articles, which I know is a mistake, but I had to. And a lot of people are missing the mark, and coming down on Dennis, saying communist, and socialist, and you know, just quit your band, or, you know, all this other nonsense. So I want to clarify things and uh, back up Dennis a little bit here. First of all, Dennis is out there advocating for you, for us, for common people. So why people would be against that, I have no idea, okay? Listen to this guy. This guy from the metal injection comment section is just really, really, not comprehending things. This comment is so dumb. I had to read it to you. Okay, this guy says, Refused had all these socialist and commie idealistic songs in the 90s, and now he has the gall to complain about the true outcome of those ideals? LOL. All the product of your efforts belongs to us now, Dennis, and I'll decide what it's worth for you, comrade. So, according to this guy's understanding, Dennis speaking out against capitalism and greed and advocating for small to mid level bands means that he doesn't want them to make money. That's this gentleman's understanding. Wow. Wow. That's all I'll say about that. Okay. And a lot of people are saying, oh, well, just quit your band or oh, well, just get a job or oh, well, if you can't afford it, then don't do it. I think those are pretty close minded statements to make. Now, like I talked about in the interview with Dennis, the cost of everything is rising. The cost of gas is rising. The cost of travel is rising. The cost of plane tickets is rising. Merch prices are rising. Record prices are rising. It takes a year to get a record. You go to the venue. You don't get any money from the ticket price. The venue wants to take a cut of merch now. The venue makes all this money on alcohol. The band doesn't get any cut of the bar. Everything is stacked against the artist seem as it always was. And I think at the heart of what Dennis is saying is, or at least what I'm saying is, it doesn't have to be like that. Why does it have to be like that? Okay. Here's a counterpoint to a dumb guy's comment. A guy named Keith in the metal injection comment section, that's not me, by the way. That's another Keith. He says, the record companies and the music industry are the band's worst enemies. If they can't pimp you out of 90% of the revenue you generate Then they shelve your albums, then lie that there isn't a market for your music, or that tastes have changed. You are better off staying clear of the companies and being independent. With technology where it is, you can record, manufacture, and sell your own product. Jack White has his own operation now that he's clear of his previous label's obligations. You don't hear much about it because the parent companies of the music labels own the magazines, radio, and television stations. John Mayer is trying to get his own label off the ground. The silence is deafening. If they can't pimp the artists, they ignore them or try to ruin them. F the record companies. Now, this is more, yes, this is more truthful to what's going on and what Dennis is talking about. And another guy in the Lamb Goat comments section. Now, I was surprised to read such insight in the Lamb Goat comments section because we all know about the Lamb Goat comments section. So this person says, I think the point here isn't so much that it isn't easy to make money. The point is that it may become impossible for a lot of smaller and middle tier bands to go on tour because of the expense, which would suck ass. Yes, that's what we're talking about. The way the system is set up now, only the biggest and most popular bands will be able to do anything. And what's that going to do to the scene and to the arts and to the music scene as a whole if that's the case? We're only going to have Taylor Swift and Drake out there. We're not advocating for smaller to mid-tier bands. And it's getting harder than ever for them to survive out there, which is what Dennis is talking about, and that's what I'm talking about, too. I mean, I've seen bands make announcements like, hey, that tour we were doing, we can't do it now. We can't afford it. We will lose too much money. And yes, you could be thick-headed and say, oh, well, just don't do the band, or oh, well, just don't tour. And, And you know what? I don't like that attitude. What if you've been in a band for 15 years, but it's a smaller band, and a lot of people love it, and you love doing it? You shouldn't, what, you should just quit? So according to these people, they should just quit. Forget it. Why? We can make things more affordable. Things should be more affordable. And it's it's worse than ever out there. That's what I'm saying. I mean, if there's a single mother with two kids out there, are you going to tell her, oh, just get rid of your kids? Oh, just become a millionaire. Oh, just get a higher paying job. Oh, it's your fault that you have those kids. Actually, yeah, this is America. So a lot of people probably would say that. And that's the vibe in the comments section of these articles too. And you know what? I just think a lot of people out there are missing the mark on what Dennis is saying. So I would like there to be opportunity for everyone. You've heard bands talk about it on this show where governments in European countries actually support the arts, and there's money out there to support artists. I would like there to be more of that in this country, but that's just not the case. Costs go up, and everyone suffers. So that's it. Okay, so moving on, we got a new email from Jack. Let's read this. Jack says, Hi, Keith. I just wanted to say how much I appreciate your podcast. I'm of a similar age, turned 40 in March and grew up in the DIY punk scene in the UK, but now live in Atlanta, where I was originally born. And for some reason, followed you on Instagram, but didn't really know how or why till I found your podcast and have been binging it for the last few days. Check out my recent Apple Music search list. Let's see what Jack is listening to. Page 99, Holy Fawn, Easy Pray, Mall Walker. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Jack, thanks for writing. And thanks for your support. Okay. So, uh, you know, besides, uh, so I'm happy that uh, the podcast is getting mentioned in some publications. And uh, look, everything's good. I'm going to be out with the Darling Fire soon. The tour kicks off June 9th in Miami at Gramps. If you live in Miami or in the surrounding area, come through. We're also playing Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville, Charleston, South Carolina, opening for Spotlights. Have you heard the new Spotlights record? You have to. You just have to. So come to the gigs, say hi to me, I'll be the guy playing bass. So that's it. That's all I've got for this week. So we're going to end the show with an artist called One Heart. This track features Redenti, and the song is called Snowfall. I keep hearing this song on TikTok, and it's really grabbed me. It's good ambient stuff. I'll add it to the New Scene 2023 Spotify playlist. You can check out all of our recommendations there. So that's it. I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening and until next time.